Welcome to Sage Talks. I'm Dr. Michelle Stanton. Hi, everyone. It's Dr. Michelle Stanton. With me today, I have Dr. Mike Dutzler. He's an associate professor in the Graduate School of Social Work at Newman University. And in 2013, among many other things that he has going on, he co-founded and co-directed Wichita in Mind, which is a grassroots community organization designed to apply neurobiology to findings to educators, medical professionals, and military veterans. Mike's area of expertise include marriage and family therapy, mindful practice, and interpersonal neurobiology, which is what we're going to be talking about today. Mike, thanks for being with us today. I am happy to be here. (laughs) So, Mike, if you could just, for our listeners, just go over a really general, I'm sure it's tough to put it in a tiny nutshell, but a general overview of what neurobiology is. Uh, Interpersonal neurobiology? Yes, interpersonal, sorry, yeah. yeah. Let's at least dial it into interpersonal neurobiology. Sure. Um, Interpersonal neurobiology is a a relatively new concept, uh, paradigm, um, that was coined by Dr. Dan Siegel out of UCLA. He's a psychiatrist and really one, not only a pioneer in this field, but a leader of this um, in, in this field as well. And uh, and so and so the term interpersonal neurobiology just simply interpersonal means uh, a person's interactions with one or more people. And then neurobiology, just as it sounds, it uh, describes or focuses on the the brain, mind, body, actually, the mind and the body, or brain and the body. Uh, so neurobi- uh, interpersonal neurobiology is how our relationships affect our mind and body. So interpersonal, you mentioned one person and the people around them. So we're talking about relationships. Uh, relationships uh, are probably the, the single most uh, impactful piece on our uh, uh, brain and body, neurobiology. But also when we're in social gatherings, when we're in crowds, uh, cheering for a, um, in unison, a, a favorite sports team or in a rather hostile hostile crowd, um, give some extreme examples, all affect our neurobiology as well. So it's not necessarily someone you are having an intimate relationship with, say, you know, parents or a spouse or a child, but it can also just be the strangers that surround you day in and day out. Absolutely, but to a lesser degree. The relationships that we that are meaningful to us, the ones that we interact with, uh, typically on a daily basis, and it could be family or friends, um, and uh, so that's that is, uh, I, I think, the foundation of what impacts our uh, neurobiology uh, more than any other social interaction. Okay. So, so our relationships, those, you know, those closest to us, the most important relationships that we experience, those have an impact on ourselves 
not only emotionally, but very much in a physical way. Profoundly. Is that- Profoundly. Okay. So you, you said selves, uh, uh, S-E-L-F, um, but it could also applies to cells, C-E-L-L. Um, <laughs> with functional MRIs, we can now um, measure or see how each particular neuron cell is affected in the brain. We can actually see that. And so from a cellular level to uh, uh, watching the brain as a system to watching um, uh, the mind-body connection. Um, but, oh, uh, so, so, yeah, go ahead, please. Um, so how would we see, like, you know, I don't have access to a functional MRI per se. Um, so what would I look for as when we're talking about having an effect, a profound physical effect on someone, what might I expect to see from, say, a very positive relationship or even a very negative kind of relationship? Yeah, I'm going to talk more ultimately about the positive pieces. The negative pieces have been studied. No big surprise. I, I will touch on it. But what um, we're learning in the last 10 years, last 15 years, is compelling information, data about uh, what healthy, vibrant relationships look like, what healthy, vibrant interactions look like as well. And so I, I want to uh, uh, focus on that. The reason, the only reason I bring up that fMRI, um, because I'm not, uh, I don't have one either. I put it on my Christmas list a couple of <laughs> times and I just wind up with a tie. But um, the, um, I, I mentioned that to say there is an explosion of scientific research that all support with very few exceptions um, some of these things that we're learning about uh, interpersonal neurobiology. So I think maybe a good place to start would just be a sort of a um, introduction to what we know about the brain um, in simple terms. 70%, over 70% of human brain, our brain is in the service of social connections. We, as a species can only survive with productive social connections. So we know that uh, other than our basic bodily functions from uh, um, breathing to other uh, digestion that are out of our consciousness, um, but still monitored or uh, uh, influenced by the brain or controlled by mm -hmm. the brain is a better word. Most of, most of our brain and why it is so much bigger, the neocortex, so much bigger than any other mammal is it is all about socializing, all about interactions. So um, a few terms that have come up in the last 20, maybe 25, 30 years uh, that I think is germane for 
our discussion today. Uh, one is brain plasticity. So um, 50 years ago, 100 years ago, we assumed that uh, the brain um, does not um, make many changes, if any, um, once we are past childhood, um, that it's pretty much a static um, organ. Um, but mm -hmm. we know now, it's, it's, it's not even a question of um, debate that the brain continually changes on uh, through the lifespan from birth to the time we die. And what this means is it uh, we can never stop learning. We can never stop, uh, we don't have to stop changing in terms of uh, learning new things, growing in a, um, in a uh, spiritual way or a uh, deeper understanding of self and other, um, that there's never an age where, because of brain plasticity, that that can't um, happen. Uh, so brain plasticity just implies the brain is plastic. It's a uh, medical term for it. It continues to be shaped and change um, on a daily basis. Okay, so second important piece is the, what uh, sometimes referred to as the brain is use dependent, U-S-E, meaning it has to be used for it to change. So if, um, if a child is in abject deprivation, complete neglect, uh, with very little stimulus for extended periods of times, weeks, months, that their brain will cease to make the kind of connections and grow um, that a normal child's brain would who gets um, uh, ongoing sensory input. So would that last, would those effects of that like deprivation last into adolescence and adulthood? Or do they have the ability to get that kind of lost time back? Um, if a child is caught early enough in the in their childhood um, and provide with a, not only a very um, nurturing environment, but the key is consistency. So we are hardwired to attach, an infant is hardwired to attach to a primary caregiver, one person, the same person, ideally. If Father, let's say mother is primary caregiver. Uh, if father is also uh, involved in child, all the better. But child, basically, an infant in particular, gets their rhythm, gets their comfort and security through one primary caregiver. Infant reads the signals of the mother. Mother reads the signals of the infant. And there is that kind of comfort and communication with how you're held or um, touched or fed. And um, if that then is, if that 
relationship is severed and then a new caregiver and a new caregiver, it becomes problematic for the infant. If we divided the brain in half, the, the higher half of the brain, um, higher half of the midbrain and uh, neocortex or the highest part of the brain and the lower part of the brain, which is mm, limbic system and um, brain stem, cerebellum, things like that. Um, what we know is that the lower half of the brain is largely fear driven, largely fear driven, fight or flight. And that's that's just like the more primitive part of the brain. And that's the survival. Yeah. The fight or flight, like you said. Right. So any organism, one cell on up uh, has a system of survival. And so human beings brain first and foremost, will have to, um, uh, the, the brain will operate to determine if it's safe or not safe. If it determines that it's safe, then the lower brain begins to rest and the higher brain begins to turn on. And in the higher brain, it must have safety but I don't mean just physical safety, like a saber-toothed tiger is chasing you in a field. Uh, I mean relationship safety as well. Um, and if it feels safe, uh, then the higher brain turns on, and the higher brain is where uh, empathy, openness to uh, others, uh, a level of higher creativity um, resides. So infants that are raised in secure uh in a secure relationship their brains begin to develop in such a way that um their uh uh their danger system fight or flight is um is not hyper vigilant and um um in have comfort uh, in relationships to others. Uh, so that part of their fear response shuts off and they are more open to um, all the good things. Now, the point I want to make is this. Um, if inf infants aren't touched enough and there's not eye contact, so skin to skin and eye contact, eye contact is huge. Uh, whether you're infant, mother infant, to two elderly um, married couples, um, to look in each other's eyes is a high level of good stimulation to our brains. So, um, first three years of life, if there is... Um, Sensory motor stimulation from holding and hear, hearing parents talk and all those things. And then um, accessibility, responsiveness, and attunement from mother to infant. That is what is the fundamental pieces of secure attachment. So attunement for a mother to infant means reading the signals of the baby. So infants can't talk. Um, 
they if they're hungry thirsty tired cold wet all they know is it's not comfortable something's not comfortable mm -hmm. they don't and there's a reliance on their primary caregiver to um, no, maybe when a baby's crying, when they're hungry or thirsty or tired or just needing to cry out or just reading those signals uh, over time um, is a key piece of creating a secure attachment with the child. So, hmm? and does the, does the baby know, I mean, maybe not consciously, but subconsciously or on some level does that baby know that that mother we'll just say mother we know primary caregiver but does that baby know the mother is attuned to that child yes yeah absolutely but the the concept of knowing is different than maybe an adult might know this is one finding that needs to be out there what we find with marital satisfaction, in fact, your mother did a master's thesis on marital satisfaction, which I still have. Yep. Boy, did she. Yep, yep, yep. <laughs> and, uh, so uh, it was just very interesting um, uh, work that she did. But what we know is that close to 90% of all first babies, uh, uh, parents have first baby, marital sat satisfaction plummets. It plummets. And uh, I, I don't know if this is because she did her, that was her thesis, but I was terrified for mine and George's relationship once we had this baby. That, I wasn't scared about being a mom. I wasn't scared about what do I do if he has a fever in the middle of the night. I was worried, and even after the baby was born, I was worried about George being happy because I knew that, and probably too much. I probably knew too much because of, you know, everything that she shared with me, and she's the best mother ever, and I mean, I wouldn't change it for the world, but uh, it's just so funny that you bring that up because that I that statistic was so terrifying to okay. me. Okay. Um so um, I, I, I want to talk a little bit about that then, uh, because terrifying is a pretty strong word, and maybe that's pretty darn close to what it, it felt like. Um, so uh, I'm going to take one step back and then apply it to you. Um, if cup, so there's this romantic belief that a baby comes home and it'll be just great and celebrating we've always wanted this and there's no way you can be prepared for an infant uh, someone can talk to you for a year non-stop about it until you have one and it's always going to be harder than you think always um and so it it is a short period of time hopefully nine months a year or so because you're sleep, you're deprived of sleep and tired and anxious and hormonal, you know, hormones and all these things and financial pressures. So many marriages bounce back. Some never bounce back after that. I, I think it's so important for people to have that information to be able to adjust their and prepare for uh, the uh, first year of life is not going to be 
uh, as joyful maybe as anticipated. So just to know, uh, welcome to the club. We're all in this, and um, uh, it's going to be rough. Uh, so the one thing with your terif terrified um, thought, uh, one is I, on the one hand, commend you for um, really paying attention to your marriage as well as the baby and juggling those two, uh, but... And I don't, uh, I've not met George. I'm going to assume he's a pretty darn good guy if you decided to marry him <laughs> and uh, he's playing with his baby as we speak. So he is probably um, in his mind realized that his wife is not um, going to be as available to him in the way she was prior to the baby. Yep, we all had to learn that one. Well, you learned it, and it, and you're a fast learner because the baby's eight months and you've already learned it. Um, <laughs> well, like I said, I had a heads up, which you're right. It was very helpful yeah. to have that. And so let's say you're worried about your husband, and then you're worried about your baby, and you're the what happens to you? And so that's why I I think as much as possible, um, and there's a lot of mothers, who, uh, single mothers, then they don't have this um, option to have a significant other in their life supporting them. But uh, uh, that, so the, 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 the mother can be more sensitive to the baby's needs if the mother isn't running on empty emotionally all the time. If there is a spouse, partner, friend who regularly can support the mother so the mother can sort the baby. Uh, so, and then after year two, three, it it is less vital and back to uh, uh, focus on marriage because what children need most, one is happy parents, uh, um, happy parents, happy mother, happy father, and ideally um, parents who love each other. It's easier to be a parent. It's easier to love a child than it is to love another adult. If uh, husband, wife, two partners are good and supportive and loving to each other in a healthy way, I think it's impossible for me to imagine them not being good parents. It, it almost the case. But the reverse is not true. If you're a great parent, but there is a lot of conflict, tension, vitriol between the two partners. It's going to undermine the parenting. The primary relationship at some point should be um, the two partners. Uh, babies, children, teenagers are going to benefit more than we can imagine. They can see a, what a healthy relationship is. So then they're set up for a healthy relationship. But what about neuro neurobiologically does that make an actual physical change to that child when they see and they're living in that loving environment no. like between the two mm -hmm. parents not even not even touching not even touching the parent child relationship just looking at the parents or the two you know caregivers relationship that makes a physical Absolutely. change on the child and uh, um that 
you know, let's say first nine months, first year, how important it is, uh, mother infant, yes, yes, yes. But it begins to shift. And I think the most powerful positive influence you can give a child is to love your partner and have your partner love you. And the child will be the beneficial recipient of that. They can see what a healthy relationship is, so then they're set up for a healthy relationship. But what about neuro, neurobiologically, does that make an actual physical change to that child when they see and they're living in that loving environment? No. Like between the two mm -hmm. parents, not even not even touching, not even touching the parent-child relationship, just looking at the parents or the two, you know, caregivers relationship, that makes a physical Absolutely. change on the child. And um, um, that, you know, let's say first nine months, first year, how important it is, uh, mother, infant, yes, yes, yes. But it begins to shift. And I think the most powerful positive influence you can give a child is to love your partner and have your partner love you. And the child will be the beneficial recipient of that. And children will learn more from how they observe their parents treat each other than how the parent treats them. And it's not unimportant to um, treat child consistency consistently with love and uh, you know, love and limits. Um, uh, so that's important, but even more so uh, the two parents. And another point I want to make, and this has to do with interpersonal uh, neurobiology, you cannot heal yourself. You cannot go in your bedroom, read a book or two or whatever. It, it, uh, a, a one brain has to help heal the other brain. That's one of the core pieces of interpersonal neurobiology. It takes two people. And you don't, you're not necessarily, are you referring to like a, a health professional or a mental health professional or any brain, any healthy, any healthy brain, brain. the most potent okay. healing relationship on the planet is uh, two intimate partners for um, over a lifetime. Or another way to say it is a marriage can is the most powerful, much more healing than a clinical setting. Um, at best, what if what you could do with therapy is is begin the process, open up uh, uh, somebody to what their work is, what the issues are, hope, under clarity. Um, but then it has to. You have to find other people in your life, good relationships that you uh, can um, help you to um, more completely be able to heal. Uh, therapy is one way. It's one way intimacy. Uh, patient shares um, vulnerabilities in their life, difficulties in their life. Uh, therapist listens and uh, empathetically tries to um, um, just be uh, present with the patient and let them feel whatever they're feeling and not, but it's one way. In a marriage, it's two-way intimacy. 
it's more complicated. Um, husband can listen to you and be there for you. And if you feel heard, if he's attuned, the healing is magnificent. And on top of that, you have opportunity to listen to him at some point. And that interchange between two people, a lifetime, and it could be with friends too. Um, but the uh, 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 that's why I say there's limitation as a clinician. I, I was at a practice for 20 years uh, and I still practice with uh, just couples. And I just believe there's only so much you can do, so much you can heal um, in a therapeutic uh, uh, professional environment. There's something you mentioned yesterday when we talked, and I want to see if that applies here or if it applies back to something we talked earlier, but we had talked about mirrored neurons. Now, does that apply a to the to the concept of two people, we'll say just in an intimate relationship, helping each other heal and, or does it apply to when that child is seeing these two intimate partners having that healthy relationship? So after we got off yesterday, I thought, Ooh, I better just read the latest research on it. And um, so this is my understanding. I read a few articles, um, uh, that have been recently published about mirror neurons. So um, children will will um, utilize uh, uh, mirror neurons will be more active in childhood. And part of it is it is so complicated to be a human being. It's incredibly complicated. And so uh, there's only so much a mother and father can tell you uh, for you to figure out um, how to operate in the society. And so children watch and watch and observe for the better or for the worse. And that's where neuro, uh, mirror neurons come in. They're typically turn on or express when it's a non-complicated task. So if uh, I'm trying, you're teaching me how to do an algebraic problem, it's it's not in the nature of mirror neurons to, but the example I gave yesterday about a, uh, a five-year-old boy watching his father shave and whatever neurons the father needs, whatever regions of the brain, it will mirror in the uh, child's is, um, is how that kind of communication of how do I need to live in this world. I'll give you an example is, um, and it's, it's germane to this era of, uh, six feet separation, uh, at the least, um, Americans typically are, uh, so all of us have, uh, in society, there's variation in how close we are to somebody, a stranger, let's say, or a, um, uh, someone we know, there's um, a certain distance, space. So I think uh, some countries in the Middle East, it's pretty darn close. Uh, they're close to each other. They might, you know, men might kiss or hug or, um, and in America, um, we have a uh, more more separation uh, than really most 
cultures, it's all unconscious. I don't think my father or mother ever said to me, uh, Mike, um, you know, be 3.5 inches uh, feet away from a string. It, how does that get communicated? We observe it. We see it and it goes beyond our consciousness. But if someone invades my space, I'm going to be agitated um, biologically. Um, and it's not yeah. anything that anyone taught me uh, in, in the uh, limited way of teaching uh, through uh, parenting talks or reading, it is uh, taught in another way, unconsciously, and it involves mirror neurons. So my son is eight months old, and he doesn't know what is a toy and what's not a toy and what's a tool, but he will beeline it for my phone if it's on the ground. And I, without understanding, without even knowing the concept of mirrored neurons the other day i was thinking does he just want this because this is always what's in my hand and he thinks well she always has that phone in her hand i should probably always have uh, that phone in my hand is that is that a, uh, a mirrored neuron thing thoughts first thought is you're a marvelous mom i will tell you uh even before you made this statement i just had that sense um, I had that attunement. You had that attunement. Um, it's not hundred percent, but in your <laughs> case, I'm a, I'll, I'll bet my house on it. Um, uh, and part of the reason I say that is you observed it. You observed this. Okay. So it's anyone's guess is, and I, frankly, I think it's a pretty good, I wouldn't have thought of that, but I think that's probably the best explanation I could come up with is that you seem to, to um, hold it and he identifies you with love and he wants to do what you do. Um, I, I, but more importantly, because we'll never know, but more importantly, you observe these things. And it may seem, oh, well, what big, what's the big deal? I see that he goes for that instead of that. But it speaks to the nuance of how you know your child and know his ways. And that's a great example of attunement. Wow. Well, it just all kind of ties it in together, does. doesn't it? That's uh, what's so exciting is it's connecting all these different fields. We talked about uh, theoretical physics um, yesterday and consciousness. Uh, and it it's all seems to be connecting with the brain and the mind and development and so it's uh it'll be interesting um to see what uh, we learn as we go right i have one last question and then we can wrap things up does how does the this western medical community receive this because i know there's not a lot of we don't know everything. I mean, we don't know everything about anything, but this is a really, I mean, in all things relative, it's a very new field. How it, how does it get accepted? I know you said you go speak with the medical professionals. How is it received that this kind of, these vibrations and these 
neurological connections that we don't quite, you know, know the ins and outs of yet, but we do know they have a profound effect on our physical bodies and our physical nervous system. Well, How that's is that uh, another great question. And I'm sure it is uh, uh, not a matter of if, but when, and I think the currency, what certainly got my attention um, and maybe uh, the medical community as well, is the science is leading this thing. This is, um, uh, we're learning these, um, uh, 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 we're building this paradigm um, largely based on hard scientific evidence of what we can measure by these PET scans and MRIs. The mind-body just has to be part of the equation. So Carl Menninger, um, who is was is considered my mind anyways, and many, many others, the best American psychiatrist in the 20th century. And he happened to be in Topeka, Kansas, as you probably know. And he made the statement, I'm paraphrasing here, and it was specific to mothers. He said, uh, mothers don't worry about conveying um, uh, love to your infant, feel love and you will automatically, and they will catch it. They will automatically catch it. That's how this works. It's transmitted via our own energy. And if we have this sense of calm and peace and, and reflective vulnerability, it's going to be more likely to positively impact another person than try to convince them in a um, intellectual or cognitive manner. Yeah. So uh, I'm yeah. so glad you have editing um, for this. The problem with having a passion about something and a calling and a vocation, these three is I have to monitor myself to shut up. I could just, uh, go on and on and um, I just it, I enjoy it so much and I just you're great at um, listening and drawing up questions and uh, it's just a pleasure and uh, if no one else listens to it my mother and father both said they would like to receive a copy and I said um, well I'll let you know how it goes first and then we'll see. Well, I'll tell you who our first, very first listener is going to be is my mom. So yeah. well, and let we know me, we've got three uh, at least. Say, Rhonda, I, uh, you come to my mind uh, fairly regularly, um, and it's been years, but all favorably. And so I, uh, this is going to inspire me to connect with you, uh, and you have a wonderful dog. Oh, that's so sweet. For all of our listeners, I don't think Mike is going to be contacting each one of you individually so i just don't want to i want to manage expectations right there but Rhonda, my mom you can um, expect I'll a phone call <laughs> well mike thanks so much i really appreciate it your passion for what you do is exactly why i wanted to talk to you about this and is exactly why i let this recording go on for an hour and a half it's just great talking with you and i hope this is a start of ongoing conversation um uh despite uh outside the podcast Keep it up. I hope so. Oh, I'm guessing it will be. All right. Thanks so much, Mike. Good deal. Bye-bye.
Thanks for listening. For more information, go to our website at prairiesagehealth.com. You can also find us on Facebook under the same name or Instagram at prairie.sage.health. If you found this podcast interesting or exciting, please follow us and share with a friend who may enjoy it as well. Now go and have a great day.